go ahead and grab a seat, get settled in. Satisfaction guaranteed. We've all heard this phrase used before by companies who are selling us some type of product or service, but why do satisfaction guarantees work? Well, because the best products, the best services are those that solve a problem. We have a problem in our life that we need to fix. We can't do something. We need the ability to do it, whether that's in our personal life, being very practical, or it's in some kind of business. And our expectation is that we will be satisfied in some way when we purchase a product or service. And if we are paying for money, money for it, we want a guarantee. We want to know that, hey, if I put money into this, I want it to satisfy me in a specific kind of way. But it's one thing to expect a product or service to satisfy a temporary need of ours. But what about our soul? Don't we all long to be satisfied in this life? Don't we long to experience a deep sense of satisfaction in a much more profound sense? Of course we do. If I was to take a survey as you came in this morning, I could guarantee the results of that survey. Every single one of you would desire to wake up tomorrow and to be satisfied tomorrow, not to be dissatisfied as you go throughout your day. And all of us here, in some sense, we've been seeking satisfaction in a deep sense from the time that we were born. We can all testify to this. There's something that we desire to be satisfied in beyond what even products and services can offer us. There's something going on there. And if this is the case, then we need to do some investigating. We need to find the answers to some important questions. First, why do we all long to be satisfied? Is it okay to desire satisfaction? And if so, where should we go to find it? And most importantly, is there satisfaction for the soul that is guaranteed? And I want you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2 as we start this morning. I want to give us some context to maybe answer some of these questions or at least get us thinking about it while we journey into Psalm 63 eventually. We know the story of Genesis 2 and into Genesis 3. As we start here, we see that the Lord, he creates man and then he places him in the garden. We see in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And after this, God says, it's not good that man should be alone. And so he creates Eve. But drop your eyes down to verse 25. It says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You see, Adam and Eve, they were fully satisfied and fully content. And those words can be interchangeable much of the time, but they were content in their situation. There was no sin present in their lives, and they were completely satisfied in the Lord and by what he had provided, which God called good. They were satisfied. But now we're going to get to chapter 3, and the serpent comes on the scene. We're familiar with the story. He immediately tempts Eve to eat of the forbidden fruit. She explains, hey, that's off limits. God said, don't do that, or I'm going to die if I eat of it. And then look what the serpent says in verse 4. You will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Like a crafty marketer, the serpent says, 
you got a problem, Eve. You've got a problem, Adam. Your eyes aren't open. You're missing out, and God has held something back from you. Eat it, Eve. Satisfaction guaranteed. And Adam and Eve, they buy it. They eat it. And sin enters the world, and their relationship with God is fractured, and as a result, so was yours and mine. David knew this. He wrote in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He knew, like we know, that we are all born into sin ever since the fall in Genesis 3. And from that moment on, man has had a problem. And Satan has been marketing fake solutions with an empty promise of satisfaction ever since. As a crafty marketer, Satan created the problem that he's offering fake solutions to. Originally, Adam and Eve were fully satisfied and unashamed in the garden. Why? Because they had a perfect relationship with the one true and living God. And David knew this again when he wrote in Psalm 1611. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And although David didn't know the specifics, he knew that the ultimate fulfillment of this truth would be in the Messiah to come. What he looked forward to in the coming Messiah, we can look back and we can see that Jesus Christ did come. He lived a perfect life and he died in our place. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For as in Adam all die, All of us spiritually die in Adam. We're all born into sin. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now let's turn to Psalm 63. And as you turn to Psalm 63, I want to give you some context for what's going on in Adam's life. So you can understand where these words are coming from. So often when we read scripture, we need to know the context of what's going on. It magnifies the situation. It intensifies the words that David's saying. Because if David's sitting in an air-conditioned luxury suite saying these words, well, it doesn't mean as much as when he's in a desert, dying of thirst, hungry, hot, possibly on death's doorstep, with his own son Absalom seeking to kill him. Not just somebody like Saul, but his own son. And we think it's Absalom because in verse 11, David refers to himself as the king. Imagine that. You're in a desert. You're dying of thirst. You're hungry. You're a king, and you should be back in your palace enjoying rich and fat food, but you're there starving to death, dying of dehydration, and your family member is trying to kill you. What words would come out of your mouth? Well, let's see what happens. When David starts talking in Psalm 63, he says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king, him, myself, I'm going to rejoice in God. I shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars 
will be stopped. Here's David in the wilderness, and he uses such rich language that provides a metaphor for us. A man dying of dehydration in the desert wilderness would not pause his search for water to find rest or sleep or to entertain himself in some way or to enjoy the scenery if there was some to enjoy. He would search in desperation, doing whatever it took to find the only thing that can satisfy him, that could give him full satisfaction in life. And David knows what he needs. He might want some things, but he knows what he needs. Although at this very moment, he's probably struggling with thirst for water in a real desert. David cries out saying, Oh God, you are my God. David knows in this moment, there's only one place to look for full satisfaction. He's going to stop at nothing to get it. Write it down like this. Search in desperation for the only one who can fully satisfy. Search in desperation for the only one who can fully satisfy. David says, earnestly, I seek after you. There are some translations that say, early I seek after you. If you have the King James Version or the New King James Version, it's going to say that. Some people think that this is a morning psalm to seek the Lord early before you get up. But actually, the original meaning of this text has much more to do about the intensity of the need than the timing. See, David is desperate. What made him desperate is discomfort, the heat. And his hunger and his thirst, his lack of safety, his son, his emptiness. See, he was away from his place of worship. So many of us in this moment would immediately start scheming of where we could find water, where we could find food, how we would take care of our enemies. And I'm sure that thought crossed David's mind. But what he wrote down, what he cried out was different. See, David knew that a cooler climate would not fully satisfy. David knew that safety from his son would not fully satisfy. David knew that being back in the sanctuary would not fully satisfy. Under that description, search in desperation for the only one who can fully satisfy, underline fully. See, there's many things in our life that can satisfy us. And many of those things are given to us by God's grace, but none of those can fully satisfy us. Only the Lord himself can satisfy fully. If you look back in verse 1 and 2, it says, look at this, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in my sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. We often pray to God, but how often do we pray for God? How desperate are you for God himself? Your desperation and your understanding of helplessness have a positive correlation. The more that you understand your helplessness on your own and your disability to seek satisfaction to a full extent from anything else, that is a correlation, has a positive correlation with your desire, your desperate desire and need for the Lord. You and I should never cease to be desperate for God. The day that we stop being desperate for God is the day that we think we can find satisfaction in something or someone else. You might say, Pastor, I'm desperate for God. And I ask, how desperately do you search for him? Do you cry out to God because you need him and not merely something from him? Now, don't get me wrong. We should seek from God the things that only he can provide. And we're told to seek him out for those things. But look at how Jesus started the prayer in which he taught us to pray. He says, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
We must start there. You will never be fully satisfied if you don't start by recognizing that God is holy. His name is hallowed. You come to him because no one else is perfect like our God. And you say, God, I want your kingdom to come. David is in the wilderness with his kingdom a long ways away. He's away from all of the comforts of his kingdom, from the power, from the throne. And he says, God, I want your kingdom to come. Do we pray like that? Or, Lord, I want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's many different things that we desire when we wake up each day. David desired water and food and vengeance when he woke up. He wanted justice. But what did he seek after first? Lord, your will be done. He understood that the sovereign God of the universe put him in the very desert where he was and gave him the son that he gave that drew him back to God. That's how God works. And you need to trust that. Only God himself can fully satisfy. Isaiah 55 verses 1 and 2 say, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. This is Isaiah looking forward. He's speaking of the living water of Christ. We can look back and see the culmination of what Isaiah is saying. Because we look back to when Christ came and he goes on, and he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. He's saying, hey, all pleasure, abundance, prosperity is given without price because Jesus paid it all. Verse 2, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Perhaps you sit here today as someone who has never been fully satisfied in your entire life. You've lived in a constant state of spiritual thirst, and your soul has never been satisfied. And what I want to say to you is that today is the day of salvation. See, you've been buying the lie throughout your whole life that the salt water, that the world, and that Satan, and that your flesh is drawing you to is somehow going to satisfy you, but it keeps making you more thirsty, and you go and get more and more and more, and you're devastated because nothing is fully satisfying you. You need to repent from that desire, that sinful desire to do it your way, of not believing in the full satisfaction of God. You need to turn from it in your mind and heart right now. You can be saved right now, turning from that and putting your trust in the full satisfaction of God. And that satisfaction is in the person of Jesus Christ. Why can you be fully satisfied? Because your sin is taken care of. He came and died a death that you deserve so he could pay the penalty of your sin. But that's not all. Oftentimes we think it's just a get out of hell free card. And so we're saying, well, I'll just repent sometime later. I want to have fun in this life. I don't want to forego the pleasures of this world because those are so much greater than what you're going to ask me to do, what the Bible's going to ask me to do. That's such a lie from Satan. You will have pleasures forevermore in this life. You'll be fully satisfied with the living water that can only refresh you now if you turn to Jesus Christ. You've been eating a banquet from the grave. You've been eating out of the trash. And God is saying, I have rich and fat food for you in my kingdom. Don't wait to enjoy that. If there was a king in this world and you were living on the street and he was offering you the chance to come into his kingdom and to eat his food and to drink his drinks, you wouldn't hesitate for a moment to do that. Don't hesitate to run to the king of kings for satisfaction. You might say, well, hey, listen, that's good and all, but I see Christians who aren't satisfied. How can I trust what you're saying? Well, I want to talk to you right now, Christian, who hasn't been satisfied in a long time. 
You feel dissatisfied. You haven't been thirsting and seeking the quenching of that thirst in your soul from God himself. And I say, repent. When you go to the word of God, Christian, go there to find God. Go there to find him. Don't just go to the word of God to find what God can give you to get through today, although that's good. And in his grace, he provides that. But go to find God. He is the one, the only one that can fully satisfy. And when you pray to him, pray like Jesus taught us. Go to him for who he is. Seek him. Ask him for him, more of him, for the spirit to guide you towards his way because it's best and it's good for you and it's refreshing. If you're not satisfied as a Christian here this morning, you also need to repent and look at church for what it is. Do you come to church to just get by for the week, to get a little fill up or to check a box? Listen, we come here and some people go to church their whole life and they don't get this. We come here to worship God. This is a worship service. And everything here is to his glory and for his worship. It is not about you and it's not about me. Nothing in our lives is. If you're coming to church and you're coming to fellowships or you're going to life groups and at any time you think that's about you and not about exalting the king, repent. Again, there are great benefits from coming to church. You're going to get things that are going to satisfy your soul in different kinds of ways, but nothing will fully satisfy you like the Lord. If you're seeking what only the Lord can give you, trying to bypass him, it's not going to satisfy. Now, I want you to imagine that you're in an actual desert where you're the most thirsty that you've ever been. Just picture that right now. Maybe you went on a vacation to a desert somewhere, which is ridiculous to me, but you did that. People that used to go to the desert when I lived in California, I just thought, what are you doing? Like everyone left that to come out here because here's where the water is. This is ridiculous. Anyway, I digress. So you go to the desert to try to find a place to enjoy yourself, but you get stranded there and you're dying of thirst. And it's starting to get real because the group you're with is starting to not look so good. And you're like, I don't have a mirror, but if I look like that, we're in trouble. And your body's starting to shut down. And then somebody says, well, I have a cooler actually with some drinks in it. Oh, thanks for bringing that out. Appreciate that. You open it up, you're all excited, and you look, and the first thing you see is chocolate milk. Okay, well, if I have to drink that, it'll get some fluids in my body, but I'm not sure that's going to work out too well. And then you look over, and there's cold brew coffee. Like, oh, that might satisfy me. It sounds really good right now, but it's a diuretic, so it's going to actually take water out of my body, and it's going to make me worse off than when I started. Then you look, and you see a Coke. And some of you are like, oh, I'm all set now. (laughs) You're like, hey, if this is my last five minutes, I'm going to enjoy it. Because that's about all you got if you drink that Coke before you start feeling like you're going way downhill. But then next to that is a bottle of water. And if you're honest and not sarcastic, you know immediately that you should grab that bottle of water. And why is that? Because that bottle of water is not just going to satisfy your thirst in that moment, but it's going to get to the cellular level of your body and actually help you survive. It's going to do things for you that only water can do. But how do you trust that? How do you trust that that water, you opened up that cooler and all of you in this room would most likely from your experience know to grab that water. You'd say that's the wisest thing to do. You know that from experience. You know that because there's evidence that points to the fact that that water is what will only refresh you. 
You might even say that you're going to have faith in that bottle of water. Not a blind faith, because you know based on evidence that water is actually going to help you survive. We can confidently seek the Lord as the only one who can fully satisfy because of the evidence regarding God's character. It's not a blind faith to seek the Lord for our full satisfaction. It's because of the evidence of his character throughout Scripture and throughout what we see in our lives. We can put our full trust in the Lord because he's revealed himself to be trustworthy. David might say it this way, search in desperation for the only one who can fully satisfy because A, because God's love is loyal. Because God's love is loyal. David says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. You see, your most precious resource in this world is your life. And many decisions we make can testify to this fact. It's so important that we'll go through much pain to preserve it. We'll push through terrifying surgeries. We'll go on ridiculously difficult diets. We'll accept painful treatments just to avoid losing our life. And rightfully so, because life is precious. We are created in the image of God, and we should protect our life. Death is our enemy, and we mourn and we grieve the loss of when there's tragedy in our church, and there is death, and we should do those things. But what David is saying is that God's steadfast love, his covenant love, what the scriptures say is his hesed love, his loyal love, is better than David's life itself. The most precious resource that David has is not as important as God's steadfast love. See, all of us here today, we're going to lose our life at some point, given enough time, everyone in this room won't be here any longer. But God's loyal love is unchanging and eternal. I know sometimes you'll talk to a young person and they have a hard time comprehending, even if they are saved, about heaven. They'll think, really, I'm there with God and that's the most important thing? They start thinking in terms of the very practical. But the reason why it's so amazing to spend eternity with God is because God's loyal love is eternal. And to be in the presence of God's loyal love without the separation and the distraction of sin is like nothing we can ever imagine. We get glimpses of it here, but it is truly going to be unbelievable. It's better than life. Paul had a similar sentiment to David in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's what Paul is saying. While I'm here, I'm going to expend my life for Christ, but to die... I'm the one who wins out in that, even though it's my most precious resource because I get to go be with the eternally loving Father. David continues in verse 4 in our passage, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. He's kind of saying what Paul's saying. He's saying, while I have this most precious resource called life, I will use it to praise you. And what an ironic statement that is, a profound statement really, because David is in the wilderness in a difficult situation because God put him there, but he's saying, he, even if I die in this moment, even if this ends my life, I will praise you with every last dying breath because your love, your steadfast love, hasn't stopped being steadfast love, has not stopped being loyal, and I will praise you because it's better than my own life. We have to believe that. And he goes on in verse 5, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. I'm going to be content when my soul is satisfied, even if my body is in torment. Those two things can happen at the same time. 
Deuteronomy 8.3 says, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna. He's talking to the Israelites who were fed with manna in the wilderness, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And some of you are thinking, that sounds really familiar. Maybe the time when Jesus was in the wilderness and Satan tempted him to turn a stone into bread. Well, what does he tell Satan? But he answered him, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Think about how profound it is what Jesus is saying right there. Jesus knows Deuteronomy that I just quoted because he wrote it. And so what he's saying is the word of God already told me what to do. I'm not going to turn this stone into bread to eat it because the word of God that I'm quoting is actually feeding my soul more than what you're asking me to do to feed my body. How profound is that with what Jesus is saying? And David knew this as well. He knew that he could be starving for food and still praise God with joyful lips. But why? Because he had and we have a book written from God, filled with his promises, and every one of those promises has come true and will come true. There's two things that I can count on in my life. I will die, and God's loyal love will never fail. And I can certainly trust that God's loyal because I trust God's word, but I can also know with certainty that I can search in desperation for the one who can fully satisfy, for the only one who can fully satisfy, because of B, because God's track record is flawless. Because God's track record is flawless. I know you've probably had this happen before. I've had it happen to me actually this last week, I think, to prepare me for this message, actually. (laughs) You're sitting down maybe on a couch somewhere in your house and you start to get sleepy. So you go up to your bed and you're like, oh, this is going to be great. It's nice and early. I'm going to get a good night's sleep. You lay down and you're instantly awake, more awake than you've ever been in your life. I was just tired to the point of falling asleep. And now I'm wide awake. And what happens is we start to meditate on the wrong things, don't we? Start thinking about all the stuff we shouldn't be thinking on. What do you remember when you're laying down in your bed to sleep at night? What do you remember when you meditate in the watches of the night? And the watches of the night is this idea of the watchman being up in the watchtower. And you're the only one awake. And you're looking out. And you're trying to protect the city from harm. So you're looking out on the horizon. Are there enemies coming? What's going through your mind in that moment? Well, if you're a watchman for Israel, you should be thinking about God's loyal love. You should be thinking about God's track record of how he saved you before, but you could easily start to spin out of control with fear and anxiety because the nighttime often represents fatigue, emotional fragility, and darkness. How often have things been solved in your life just by getting to sleep and waking up the next day? Because the nighttime, the darkness, is when we start to believe certain things about our life. We start to forget God's promises. We tend to remember everything that is happening in the upcoming week. But we should remember God upon our beds, like David said. See, our minds, they pull up these fears, these anxieties, these future troubles, and we chew on them in the deep recess of the night. We meditate on our anxieties. It's the opposite of what we should be doing. But David says that we should be meditating on God in the watches of the night. In verse 7, David says, For you have been my help. How can we meditate on God in the watches of the night? By remembering what God has done. 
We look back, knowing in confidence that God is never changing and seeing what he has done in our lives. David can look back to recall the ways that God has been his help in the past, giving him confidence for the future. Yes, he's in the desert, dying of thirst and hunger, and his son is trying to kill him, but he is a king that was chosen to be a king by God. And he can look back at the provision of his life all throughout his life and praise God for it. He can meditate on the goodness of God at any time, especially at night. But there's this passage in the New Testament that I think is such a wonderful gift to us when it comes to anxiety and the antidote to the anxiety that creeps into our life so often even at night. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says this, Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You see, oftentimes when we lay down at night and our mind starts to stir, we're tempted to find satisfaction in our planning and not in God himself. We're not being necessarily thankful like Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, the antidote to anxiety. Think about it this way. If you could, write down all the things that you're thankful about and pull those to mind or even pull those out and read those when those moments happen. Go to God and thank him. You know what's ironic about these moments is oftentimes the very things that are causing us anxiety offer us a thanksgiving within them. Lord, I'm so devastated by what might happen at my job next week, and I'm tormented about what might happen when my boss meets with me and talks to me about my performance, you can flip that around and say, God, thank you for giving me a job. Thank you for giving me the ability to go and provide for my family. Or you say, you know, there's this difficult surgery coming up next week, and you start to think about all the complications. You made the huge mistake of going on to WebMD and searching about what could happen to you, and so your mind is spinning out of control, and you say, no, Lord, you know what? I'm going to thank you for modern medicine. Thank you for the fact that this isn't a death sentence, that I can actually go get surgery when 200 years ago I would have died from this. Thank you, Lord. We can take all of the difficulties in our life and we can turn them around into thankful praises. And I think that's what Paul's saying here is do not be anxious about anything, which is a command. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, thankful prayers should be coming out of us every time we find ourselves becoming anxious. That should be the knee-jerk reaction of a Christian. That's how we train for anxiety. Thankful prayers over and over again. And you know what? He also says earlier in Philippians, do all things without grumbling and disputing. Pretty easy to follow that command if you're always having thankfulness on your lips. You're turning everything that's difficult in your life into thankfulness. That'll get you on the path to being fully satisfied in God. Often in our efforts to satisfy ourselves, we tend to cling to the fleeting things of life. We create these unofficial rules in our life. And there's the big ones, right? The finances, as long as I've got this much money in the bank, we're good. Whew. Still got that total right above that amount. I'm good. I can praise the Lord. I'm satisfied. Or our health, as long as I feel a certain way, as long as I can function a certain way, I will be fully satisfied. Or our job, as long as I have this type of job, and as long as it happens in this kind of way where I can... I can do me, I can fulfill my dreams or do things that I've always dreamed of doing in my profession or my occupation, then I will be fully satisfied. Or a family. 
if our families look a certain way and there's certain things happening there, whether it's the amount of children we have or the type of relationship we have with our spouse, then I will be fully satisfied as long as those parameters are met. But it's not always the big things either, is it? We can kind of glance over those, especially if we don't have any major trials going on in our lives. But I want to give you a list of some smaller things. And I'll warm you up with an easy one. Can we be fully satisfied without coffee? I hope so. But when you listen to this list, think about how often we complain when the little things in life are taken from us. And we find ourselves not being fully satisfied. And I'll I'll admit, we all struggle with this. I'll get to some on this list that I struggle with probably more than you do. So let's go through this together. Can we be fully satisfied without air conditioning? Some shook their head no. (laughs) You know, think about David. Even when David goes back to his palace, he doesn't have air conditioning. We are the most pampered generation in the history of God's people. And sometimes I think we start to feel like we are entitled to certain things. And I only bring this up because if we're going to be fully satisfied in God alone, then we need to start to let go of some of the things that we're seeking to find full satisfaction in. Can we be fully satisfied without owning a home? You know, some of you came to the valley with this idea of this is where I can go buy a home and you miss the window because it's not a great place to buy a home anymore as far as getting a great deal because of supply and demand and all the people coming to the valley. Can you be satisfied without that? Can you be satisfied without being married by a certain age, you young people? Can you be satisfied without the right person in office? Can you be satisfied without peace and quiet? I said I'd get to one that's hard for me with six kids in the house. If I couldn't be satisfied without peace and quiet, I would never be satisfied. But I have to ask myself that because when I desire peace and quiet and there is none, I say, God, I'll be fully satisfied in you. Can I be desired? Can I be satisfied? Can we be satisfied without an in and out in the valley? Well, fortunately, the saints have been praying, and there's going to be one, so we don't have to ask that question anymore. We have to seek God to be fully satisfied, but we can still request things of him. Can we be fully satisfied without retirement by a certain age? Can we be fully satisfied without a certain number of children? Can we be fully satisfied without a family vacation that we were hoping for? Fully satisfied without the weather to do what we plan to do? Can we be fully satisfied without a successful hunting season? Or can we be fully satisfied without a hunting season at all? Can we be fully satisfied without being understood by others and oftentimes being misrepresented? Can we be fully satisfied without a certain ministry post? Can we be fully satisfied without a building for our church? I could do this all day. We could look at all these things in our life that we are tempted to find satisfaction in. And the reason it's important to list off these little things, because I I truly believe that you're probably not trying to find full satisfaction in these things, but it snowballs, does it not? These things that we try to find satisfaction in, and they're really caveats to finding full satisfaction in God. I'll find full satisfaction in God as long as God has an understanding of what I need. 
That's not how God works. And many times the things that he's putting in our life that remove the things that we've set up as idols are the very thing that draw us to him to find full satisfaction. And if you have any idols that I've either listed off or you've thought of, you better put those down and walk away from those because God will remove those in his kind discipline in your life to get you to focus on him. So often we grasp at the temporal to quench the thirst of our eternal soul, and it's not going to work. You know it won't work. You've tried it. I've tried it. It doesn't work. But what does David say to do? He says in verse 8, my soul clings to you. Sounds nice, but what does that mean? Well, Matthew 22, 36 through 38 says, teacher, and this is a guy who's coming to Jesus. He's a Pharisee. He's a lawyer who's asking this, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, Jesus said to him in response, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And Jesus, again, is quoting Deuteronomy. This is from Deuteronomy 6, 5. So David and all the Jewish people, they would have understand this concept. They would have understood it. And Jesus is saying to his people now and to us, we need to give God everything. This isn't about compartments and, okay, my soul gives him this, my mind and my strength and my heart gives him this. It's about your full self giving everything to God. Picture for a moment the idea, just as a way of explaining it visually, that we carry around what's important to us in our lives, in our arms. Things that we prioritize, we carry that around. So we've got these things in our arms that we're walking around with, and sometimes we make those things a non-negotiable. I'm not putting this down, but what David is saying is, no, you've got to put all those things down so that you can cling on to the Lord. You can't grasp the Lord when your arms are full of everything else that's distracting you from him. Nothing I need to drop from my grasp to better cling to my father will result in any less satisfaction. That's the lie that we've believed. there's certain non-negotiables in my life that I need to have. We need to question those and understand that we can only be fully satisfied in the Lord. But how do we know that we won't have any less satisfaction? Because those who've clinged to him in the past in faith, they have been met with eternal blessings. We have the opportunity, the blessing, as even modern-day Christians to look back at many, many saints Maybe people we know in our lifetime, but for sure we can look back to Hebrews 11 and see the hall of faith at these men and women who trusted the Lord to find full satisfaction in him. Just a few of them, Moses, Noah, Abraham, Rahab, David, Joseph, Samuel. These people who didn't carry around non-negotiables, idols in their lives. They put them down in faith knowing, no, God can fully satisfy. And even if that means my life is difficult for the rest of my life, as Paul says, it's a light momentary affliction because I will be with God in all of eternity. And I love how Hebrews follows up with this. In Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, it says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all of these men and women, let us also lay aside every weight, And sin, which what? Clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Not only do we put them down so we can grasp onto the Lord, but we can run the race that God has for us. This is looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
You see, Jesus, remember when he was in the garden before he was going to be crucified, he cried out to the Lord and asked him if the cup could pass. He's speaking of God's wrath. You see the nails and him dying on a cross wasn't the most painful thing for Jesus. The most painful thing was receiving God's wrath upon himself for you and I and God turning his back on him during that process. But Jesus said, no, I, I'm going to find full satisfaction in doing the will of the Father. He gave us a great example in what he chose to do, and we wouldn't be sitting here now as Christians if Christ didn't go through with it. God's track record ultimately culminates in the person of Christ. His life, death, resurrection, and eventually his return are all of God's promises and amens. Think about those people in Hebrews 11. They are with Christ now. They looked forward in faith, and their faith became sight when they stood before Jesus Christ for all of eternity. And now we wait for his return. We can look back at all these men and women who trusted in God for complete satisfaction, and their faith was rewarded in Christ. Christ is the promise that will forever remind us that God is faithful. So we can lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely, and we can cling to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might be saying by now, okay, I trust God's loyal love, and I trust God's track record, but there's a lot of injustice going on here. David is in the wilderness being tracked down by his own son to be killed by him. There's a lot of injustice. What do we do with that? What do we do in our life when evil people are seeking to do us harm? We can search in desperation for the only one who can fully satisfy See, because God's justice is perfect. Some of you slowly but surely can start to relate more and more to David's situation because you look out the world and you see a lot of injustice being done and you want to do something about it. You're tempted to take things into your own hands. But so often as we're going to see here and what David is saying and what scripture testifies to is many times when we go above our pay grade and we try to take things into our own hands to enact our idea of justice, we not only remove glory from God, but we also distract ourselves from focusing on the only one who can fully satisfy. We think our vengeance will satisfy us. We think that somehow making things right in the world will satisfy us. That is not true. We need to be careful about what we take into our own hands. David knew that if he focused on vengeance, he'd be committing three sins. He would be showing a lack of trust in God's word. He'd be trying to do God's job for him, and he would be foregoing his search for God himself in the process. Instead, he cries out what we see in Psalm 63, and he says, wrapping it all up, starting in verse 9, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king, David, myself, I shall rejoice in God. And all who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. See, David has strong words for his enemies, and he always has. He's not sweeping injustice under the rug, saying, well, we'll just close our ears and pretend like bad things aren't happening. That's not what he's doing. But his words they don't promise personal vengeance. They're words that promise God's perfect justice. He says, see, I'm with the God of gods, and you're not going to get away with this. I'm going to worship and praise him because his steadfast love is better than life, and he will provide rich, fat food for me. But for you, unless you repent, 
you're going to feel the wrath of God, which is much worse than anything I could do to you. David understood that vengeance and justice, they were above his pay grade. He knew the essence of Romans 12, 19 before we did. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. David trusted God's perfect justice, and I want to give you three rapid-fire reasons to trust his justice yourself, because I think this is a growing distraction for us in the church. We see so much going on that we want to deal with, but we need to trust the Lord in this area, maybe more than any other, as we continue forward in a world, in a nation that's out of control with injustice. We need to trust the God of all justice. First, no one escapes giving an account. 1 Peter 4, 5 says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You see, in context, what's happening here is that people are trying to say, hey, just come and sin with us. Your God's not coming back. Everything is just fine to just enjoy yourself in life. And Peter's saying, no, everyone's going to give an account. They're going to be judged, both the living and the dead. No one escapes giving an account. God is a perfect judge. He doesn't sweep anything under the rug. In his perfect holy nature, he has to deal perfectly with every sin and praise God that he dealt with ours on the cross. Secondly, the times of ignorance won't be overlooked forever. Acts 17, 30 and 31, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance all by raising him from the dead. How can we be sure that the times of ignorance won't be overlooked? Because the down payment was Christ rising from the dead. We of all people should be confident in God's justice. If God wanted to judge the world, he'd send Christ back, and he hasn't yet. And so we make disciples. We rescue people from the power of sin in the same way we were by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then third, final judgment is coming soon. In the scheme of all eternity, in the context of all eternity, although it may feel like a long time, we might be sitting there saying, God, how much longer people are getting away with this? Well, this is a new thing to our nation, so buckle up. Because many other nations have dealt with injustice and difficulties and evil leaders for a long time. But in the context of eternity, it's such a short time. It's a light momentary affliction. And God will judge. And it's coming soon. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And there's two different judgments that are going to happen for the world. There's the great white throne judgment. In simplest terms, that's when people will be judged for our sins. We get to bypass that judgment because Jesus took our sin for us on the cross. Those who've put our faith in Jesus Christ. But we have another judgment called the Bema Seat Judgment where we go before the Lord, we go before Jesus, and we get rewards for what we have done for the Lord, our sacrifices, our, our works based on a true, contrite heart doing it for the Lord, trusting in the Lord for his full satisfaction in all that we do. And all that I want to say about that is we want to stand before the Lord, not ashamed of trying to do his job for him. Because the flip side of holiness is God's wrath and his justice. You see, God has to be perfectly just because he's perfectly holy. And God will enact perfect justice and perfect wrath, and we will praise him for it in 
heaven. We see that in Revelation, that the church will praise God as destructive as it is for his wrath because God's wrath is perfect. But we praise him for his patience in the meantime. And when we go to enact God's vengeance on our behalf and in our own way, with our own ideas, we remove glory from God. We're stealing glory from God because he's going to have that vengeance, and that's going to glorify him. Did Absalom and those seeking to destroy David's life deserve God's wrath? Of course. Absolutely. And David's not going to sweep that under the rug. But David also understood that so did he. He deserved that. And only by God's grace was David safe, secure, and saved from God's wrath. And we see David's obedience to this time and time again, do we not? So many times he could have killed Saul and he didn't because he knew that God wasn't in that. He trusted the Lord, knowing that letting Saul go would result in more pain for him. But he wanted to obey God and trust him. And only by God's grace are we all in here today and not out there doing evil in the world. We must have that truth in our hearts when it comes to trusting the perfect, just God that we worship. And so David found himself in the middle of the desert, thirsty, hungry, with people trying to kill him. I just want to ask us, all of us, could we find ourselves in that situation and still find satisfaction? Could we cry out like Psalm 63, like David cries out, truly believing that God is the only one that can satisfy? Could you find yourself alone, separated from your loved ones? Think about your family in your mind right now and being separated unjustly from your loved ones. Could you still find satisfaction in the middle of that trial? Could you find yourself ridiculed and persecuted at your job for what you believe and still find satisfaction? Could you find yourself spending your last dollar not knowing where more will come from, not having any food in the pantry or the fridge, and no one will give you any, and you're slowly dying? Could you still find satisfaction in that moment? Could you find yourself reeling from tragic loss of a loved one and still find satisfaction? Could you find yourself cast out of your family and discarded because of your beliefs and still find satisfaction? Could you find yourself betrayed by someone who is supposed to be the one that loved you and still find satisfaction? Could you find yourself on death's doorstep with no hope of ever experiencing another, another earthly pleasure and still Find satisfaction. Could you find yourself tired, beaten up, worn out, and weary from life? As I assume many who hear my voice are. Could you find yourself in that state and still find satisfaction? Well, it all depends on where you're looking to find it. The world is going to offer you temporary, counterfeit satisfaction. Just like Satan offered Eve in the garden. Just like Satan offered Jesus Christ in the wilderness, but Satan in the world can never guarantee the satisfaction that you're designed to experience. It's just another cup of salt water. Stop drinking it. Drink of the living water because Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And his guarantee, was, his guarantee was signed and sealed by the signet ring of the Father when the tomb was empty. Let's pray.